Luke chapter 24. We'll begin reading in verse 36 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Luke 24, 36 through 53. God's Word says, Now as they said these things, Jesus Himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When He had said this, He showed them His hands and His feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marvel, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send you the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high." And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. In prayer this morning. Lord God, we do thank you again for the opportunity to come to your word. We recognize the heavy responsibility that is there. For you have given us your word that we might know you. That we might know that which pleases you. That we might live in accordance with it. Lord, we are very frail in our will as well as in our ways, in our body. We pray that you might, by your Spirit, overcome that frailty, not only today in the hearing of your Word, but each day in the living of it. Lord, we are confident, for your Word has declared it. Your people should be holy as you are holy. That we should fulfill your mandate for us as a, as a body of believers and us individually and as families. And Lord, our prayer is that we might be attentive today to that mandate. To all that it requires of us, not just in public service, but in our private walk. Lord, this morning we do Pray that you might guard this time. Guard it from the distractions of last week. The distractions of what we are planning for next week. Guard it from our own arrogance. 
The idea that we might think we know what your word teaches before we even look into it. Lord, we want to conform our beliefs to your truth. As weak as our will seems to be to live obedience to your word, it seems to be very strong in resisting its truth. So Lord, we pray that you might humble us, that we might be humbled before you. Lord, we thank you so much for your truth before us, your spirit within us, your people around us, and your word before us again. We pray that our focus might be upon you. Before all else, above all else, that you might be lifted up and magnified in our presence, the Lord only, if it is the case in our hearts. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. We come to a very difficult passage of Scripture. There are a few small issues that we want to address um, very quickly. Uh, that's not the difficult part. It might seem to be, and it might require some study and explanation, but it's not really the hard part of this scripture. Perhaps the most difficult part is uh, associating ourselves with the condition of the disciples and then to be able to step forward from that condition into the expectation of God on us. Recognizing that we are more like the disciples than not like them. And yet, uh, the command of Christ weighs as heavily upon our shoulders as it did upon theirs. Even in their unbelief. And so let's look at Luke chapter 24. We have studied it from two other perspectives, from the historical events of what occurred, from the theology of Christ in terms of his appearance to them, and uh, his, the necessity of Christ to open their hearts, to illuminate their minds, um, and the purpose behind him of not allowing them to recognize him at first glance, at first uh, engagement, if you will. We come now to a group of men and ladies who are gathered together who have witnessed most powerful things the earth has ever witnessed. God incarnate, walking and teaching on the earth, performing the miracles He would perform, although He said the greater miracles they would do, and in fact they have. But they have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They have themselves seen Him They have visited the empty tomb. They have spent the day walking with Him, speaking in their ear on the road to Emmaus. They have now gathered at evening to rehearse the wonder of the events of the day. And Christ arrives in their midst. And we are immediately confronted with the fact that Christ is different. 
Jesus has taken on a different kind of existence, and yet it is very familiar. It is a shift that we want to discuss a little bit. We don't want to spend a lot of time there, as I said, but we're going to discuss a little bit. That is that He is physically present. Christ Jesus physically rose from the dead. His body was absent from the tomb. And we believe in a physical resurrection that is that these bodies, though they experience death, will be resurrected. That is that graves will open and that uh, bodies will be reconstituted and we will be with our Lord in heaven. We will not be spirits or ghosts wandering about or enjoying heaven uh, in some other body, but rather it will be this physical manifestation of myself with some very slight changes, slight in appearance, and yet very dramatic in preparation for our new home. Christ's seeming ability to be wherever He wanted to be or needed to be without using doors or windows, tells us there's something different about Him. And yet there's a physicality there that is very obvious, that He can be touched and handled, that He can eat and consume food. And His own statement where He says, I am not a spirit. I am more than that. Which is an incredible thing to say, for Christ is declaring that a spirit does not have flesh and blood. A spirit does not have these these accoutrements, if you will, of being. Um, and he should know, for all eternity past, God was a spirit, is a spirit. And all who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, Christ himself declared. This one who is God became man. In Luke very carefully ties the end of his gospel to its beginning. That our God took on flesh and blood, not just for 30-some years, but for the rest of time. That he became man, not just for a season, But for the balance of his existence, he became man. And would possess, and 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 more than just possess in terms of as a spirit would possess a man, but rather that that he would um, be tied, if you will, even, to this physical presence of flesh and blood. And we see the connection to Luke's development of Christ coming, being being born of the Holy Spirit and of the Virgin Mary and the wonder of that event. Now we are confronted with the permanence of that event. That when Christ Jesus left heaven's glory, He understood that He would become man not just temporarily, but permanently. 
Look at me, I have flesh and blood even in my resurrected form. Even now in this new body, I have flesh and blood, I can eat, I have a physical spatiality about me. It's still me, the same one that was here on earth a few hours ago, a few days ago, we'll say. A few days ago, 72 hours is a few hours, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Something happened 72 hours recently or something I had to get. And Christ says, look at me. I have changed, and yet I am here, still a man before you, but in my glorified body. And we get a glimpse into what God has in store for us, but we don't want to neglect looking at the necessity of Christ coming in the flesh, for Christ Himself directs our attention to that, saying in verse 46, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead the third day. He earlier, and we talked about this prior, that it was necessary to be fulfilled all of the law of Moses and, and of the prophets and of the Psalms, that there was a necessity to Christ doing this. It was the only means for our salvation. It alone was the means for men to be saved. And it alone stands today as the only way to be saved, to be delivered from our sin. There is no plan B. Christ calls upon us to consider Himself standing in the midst. And, of course, the men are terrified, frightened. They are later overjoyed, but all through it they are confounded. Christ did not come as a spirit or as a ghost. He does not live today in that capacity or in that form. But rather, He is today the God-man on a throne in heaven. This is who He will continue to be. When we talk about heaven, we are referring not to a place where you're floating around in clouds strumming a liar, but rather you'll be in a new Jerusalem, the throne room of the King of kings and Lord of lords will be in the light of His presence and He will have that same physical manifestation because it is who He is now. The eternal Spirit became man. And we are odd. We should be just as frightened, just as terrified, just as overjoyed, just as confounded as the disciples, and just as marveling at the entirety of it. That Christ would do all this for me. And then, not only in a small way for me, but then to say, as I am, so you shall be. That we'll enjoy His presence not um, as something less than what He is, but indeed as He is. That we will be in that glorified body like unto His for eternity. That we will receive in our those bodies that 
perfection and that holiness that Christ has already communicated to us through our justification that He will communicate to us even further in our glorification. We look forward to that day. As we talked some, either last week or the week before, um, we, we discussed about why wasn't He recognizable last week and the idea of the of the whiteness that we find of those who have entered into the glory. We find the description of that uh, place as well in Revelation chapter 7 and the white robes that are given, the clothing that is, that is granted to all uh, in that place. Uh, we see Him in Revelation uh, described as as white-haired coming on a, a horse. And we, we find Him uh, presented in that physical way. Does that mean everyone's going to have that appearance? Uh, maybe. But what we do know is that we will have bodies similar to this, recognizable, and yet prepared, designed for eternity in His presence. I often hear people talk about their physical form in heaven and describing it as though every uh, defect of our flesh will be gone. And so, as a young person, I would say, I can't wait to get out of heaven and get rid of these freckles. Because I'm sure freckles are not going to be in heaven. And I'm sure that all of us are going to have full heads of hair when we get there. Right, Bill? Right? You and I. But we find something very different in the presentation of Christ here. He shows them His hands and His feet. And the indication is from His conversation with Thomas in, in uh, another Gospel is, is that there are still the evidence of His sacrifice upon those hands and those feet. They were still there in His glorified body. And oftentimes we look at the defects of man or those that we, those injuries that we have incurred in life and we think, well, I can't wait till they are gone as though somehow having them upon our being makes us less than perfect. But I will contend with you that some of those very marks are part of the perfecting of us. Even as Christ's marks were not a demonstration of His imperfection, but of His perfect sacrifice. I find very little in Scripture describing extensively what our bodies will be like. And so our risen Lord becomes really the main thrust of any designs we might have on what it will be. It is sufficient for us, according to Scripture, to know, first of all, that you'll recognize Him as you'll recognize one another. It will be flesh and blood. That you will have a physical body for all eternity. 
of a different nature perhaps, but yet still of this world before sin with some slight modifications to be in His presence. Perhaps it's inappropriate to use a slight modification referring to the extraction of sin nature. We will be in His presence in that physical form as He will be in this pre- that, pre- that place in His physical body. I know many of you coming up on the Thanksgiving this Sunday are really excited about the portion of Scripture here where Christ says, not only can you see me and touch me, but you can feed me too. Aren't you excited about that? When you get to heaven, the dinner isn't over. Okay, It's just going to go on. Uh, we have a, that description for us in, in, in Scripture that in heaven we will have um, that feasting available. We have the, the marriage supper of the Lamb and it's going to put anything we here on earth to shame. We have the description of fruit that is born every month and, and water that is consumed. And so we have that all eternity, this flesh and blood will still need nutrition on some level that we receive from the river of life and from the trees of life that are on the shore of that river And that all flows from our Savior, Jesus Christ. How God gives us eternal life is in His graces. We think somehow we just automatically have it and that we will have no hunger anymore because we won't have an appetite. Not what I find in God's Word. We will not hunger because there will be no lack of anything spiritually, relationally or physically. There will be no lack. And so we find Christ on the shore later on that uh, preparing a meal for them, a breakfast for the fishermen as they've been out on the Sea of Galilee, um, which brings up our other issue we're going <coughs> to excuse me, deal with a little bit. But we find uh, Him eating with them on a regular basis. He'd already broken bread with them on one occasion. He now eats before them and this is what Christ has as our the first fruits of resurrection shown us what it will be like. For the and some have taken issue with this idea, um, those that think that there is nothing but evil of this world and nothing is salvageable, forget Genesis chapter one. For all that has been created here was good. And it is our sin that has damaged this, not God's design. And so there is no mistake here that God would sustain the design that was good to begin with and just purge it of its sin. This should not concern us, but should just further cause us to marvel at the goodness of God and His creative work and cause us to hang our heads low as we consider the horrible effects of our sin on His creation. That He can still use those designs and bring them into His presence where there is none but holy, holy, holy. Where there is light and no darkness at all. 
should not concern us. We should anticipate it. For when he created it all, it was good. We come to this question, the second little question, and I haven't gotten to the big questions yet, okay? The second little question, first one is about the body of Christ. What was it like? And, and how much should we expect it ours to be like that? Um, we usually miss the theological aspect of the fact that he is in body permanently, which is much more significant than what it was like. Second question is, where, why the distinguishment between Matthew and John and Mark and Luke of where the disciples are? For here, we have Christ instructing them to stay in Jerusalem. Uh, in John, they are told to go to Galilee. We find them on the Sea of Galilee. We find them in Matthew on the Mount in Galilee. We are going to find the, and there seems to be some discrepancies between the accounts of the Gospels in this area of where did Christ expect his disciples to be, where was the ascension occur, and uh, what were the circumstances around it. And yes, we can um, get worked up over this a little bit, but I want to remind you that between this first day of events, of the first day of Christ's resurrection, and his ascension, although it doesn't come across very well in the Gospel of Luke, um, because Luke is very succinct in this last chapter, as is Mark, uh, we have 40 days of activity. We have this period of time where Christ is engaging with these individuals, these disciples. We have these opportunities that are in various places, in various events, where Christ is encountering them uh, on a lake in Galilee, on a mountain Galilee, uh, here in Jerusalem, in this inner room, uh, on the Mount of Olives at the end of this chapter where Christ uh, parts from them. I don't think we ever get the idea that somehow His ascension was the same day as His resurrection. If it was, then there was a multiple ascensions that occurred um, and Christ was engaging with them on a regular basis over those 40-some days. And so let's not get caught up too much in each chronicler's account of these days because, frankly, all four of them, and John gives us the most expansive information of that time period, are very brief in describing that very, uh, really kind of a lengthy time period of well over a month. And so let that not discourage your hearts as somehow someone's got you over a barrel that the Gospels are not to be trusted because there's disparity between them in where the disciples are to be and when and by Christ's command and by their presence. And by the way, just because Christ commanded them to be in one place doesn't necessarily mean they're going to stay there, is it? Christ commands you to be in a lot of places. We don't always stay there, do we? Just an idea. From what I could tell in the Sea of Galilee, they weren't where they were supposed to be. Okay, So don't confuse his command with their action, unfortunately. So, those are the two less important things, but they are issues nonetheless that I want to address. I don't want to skip them and, and blur them and let you think that somehow um, they're too tough for us to handle. Um, they are not. And they should not cause you to wave in your faith whatsoever. But we come now 
to what we want to discuss, and that is the bigger picture. These little details are interesting, but they capture too much of our attention, I believe. On two occasions, Christ in verse 44 and 46, as I talked about, even in his conversation on the road to Emmaus, the focus has been on explaining to them the necessity of all that has occurred and the further necessity that is theirs to communicate this to the world. He reminds them of His Word while I was still with you in verse 44. These things had to happen. They had to be fulfilled, which are written in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, the Psalms, going all the way back to Genesis, even as I share with the two men on the road to Emmaus, and I remind you of it now, that this was God's plan from the initiation of sin, and even before, when He knew sin, because of His foreknowledge, this was His plan. And that this is necessary for the deliverance of men from their sins, because there is no other alternative. This was necessary. In the mind of God, in the person of God, there is no other means for men to be delivered from their sin. All that hangs on them is death and judgment. Save one way. There could be one way that would satisfy all of who God is and all of the demands of His person. That way was for a substitute to be made, to be had. A substitute to take your punishment for you. For it is certain we deserve it. And it is certain it must be executed. Those two certainties, God apparently could not change. He could not make you less than worthy of judgment by a unilateral declaration. He could not do it. It would violate who He was. It would violate what holiness means. And God could not simply erase your sin. By decree. Now if that bothers you a little bit, that God couldn't do that, um, we can deal with that another time. But this is evident. Or else the words of Christ are meaningless that this is the only way. This was necessary. The second thing. Not only that God could not by decree eliminate your sin... Secondly, that He could not, by decree, eliminate your punishment. He could not simply declare, okay, you deserve death, but I'm not going to execute that judgment. For the second that God considers that or implements that, He is no longer a just God. He has violated His person, and therefore, God could not simply remove from you, the punishment you deserve. By decree, He could not. The sin could not be decreed away. 
the punishment could not be decreed away. And this is extremely theologically important for us to understand. And thus God in His foreknowledge recognizing these two absolute truths that we need to communicate to people that there is no way it is impossible for your sin to stop being your sin. And there is no way for your punishment to disappear and to avoid it. If it was impossible for God, guess what? It's impossible for you. You can't just make your sin go away and you can't make His punishment just evaporate. Or God would cease to be God. And then we are just brutes. We are no different than the animals. And you're all here clothed for some reason. I challenge our young people, why are you wearing clothes? Because there's something different about you than the animals, isn't there? And so it was necessary. It was necessary. Absolutely necessary. And elevate that word necessary to its highest echelons in your imagination and you'll only begin to scratch the surface of how necessary it was that Christ come and die for you. We use these terms that we are helpless, that we are powerless, that we are, that we are without hope and we are in despair without Christ and we say those and they flow out of our lips and, and I wonder if we really grasp the significance of them. Yet Christ, it was not lost on Him or on God. It's necessary. We cannot simply evaporate your sin by decree and so I will transfer it. And your punishment cannot simply be released. I will transfer it. And God says, I'll take your sin. He who knew no sin became our sin and took upon him the full weight of punishment that we deserve. I cannot begin to conceive of how a holy, holy, holy God could do that. How He who, in whom no darkness dwells was left on a cross in darkness when He became our sin. This is the most marvelous part of our salvation. that Christ became our sin and it was necessary. He had to suffer. It was necessary for Him to come and to take our place. To take upon Him our sin, to put upon Himself our sin, to take upon Himself its punishment, to take upon Himself the guilt of it that He might purge us of it, to release us from that that we rightly deserve. 
And so it is removed from us and taken upon Himself that He will pay the price. He will propitiate for us that we might be atoned. He has now demonstrated this or spoken of this twice. He opens up their understanding to the Scriptures in verse 45 in between those two statements of the necessity of what has happened in their midst wants them to understand from the Scriptures the necessity of it, talks about his suffering, and then joyously, quickly, turns it to and rise from the dead the third day. It was necessary not just that Christ take on our sin and take its punishment, that He conquer that sin and conquer that punishment for us. You see, if He just suffered and died for us, Okay, but now we have a dead Savior and we would have no hope. Wishful thinking, maybe, but no sure hope that the Bible describes, but it is when Christ conquers sin and conquers death that now we have real hope for the resurrection demonstrates the acceptableness of His sacrifice that He has completely and fully paid for the sin of the world. When he said it was finished, it was finished in terms of his work on the cross, but it was the powerful work of the resurrection that was upon him. Why could he say it was finished on the cross? Because he knew his innocence. He knew his person. And he knew the power of God. That what is begun will be finished. And the resurrection demonstrates his victory over sin and death that has been fully endured, conquered. And now, just as He became our sin, now He shares His victory with us. That we can become like Him. That we are called to be more than conquerors through Christ. That we are called to, even in this life, to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, that we are to be those that conquer sin, that have no longer any fear of death, for it has been crushed. Death, where's your sting? Where's your victory? And we can stand before firing squads and, and death squads in India. We can stand before those that want to torch our houses down around us and we can say, there is nothing to fear here. For the curse of sin is death. But Christ has conquered death and sin. And so we can stand with boldness in this day and we should live lives that drive sin from our presence. And that is so important to live like that. Living towards righteousness instead of just trying to avoid sin. If you're going to try to live your life trying to avoid sin, you will sin constantly. You drive it from your life by turning from it and going after pursuing righteousness with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that we consider death in this body not something to be feared, but anticipated. 
I anticipate thy transformation. We refer to Christians' death as, in the Bible, it refers to us as a sleep. I hear many refer to it in Christian circles today as our home-going. For we are certainly pilgrims in this foreign land. We are strangers here and we ought to behave like it. But we look forward to these new bodies. Not so dissimilar from these and yet radically dissimilar in that there will be no sin and no death working in us. And this Christ shares with us that is, He took upon us the load of our sin and its punishment. He then turns, gets victory over that, and then shares that victory with us. And we are the recipients of His grace and His mercy. If, and here's the if, that calls upon us to action. If we will repent and receive Him as Savior. And so we are called upon as those who have received this wondrous working of Christ, the taking of our sin and its punishment that was impossible to get rid of, even for God. It was impossible for Him to just purge it out of us by decree, and therefore He sent His Son to take our place that He might carry it on Himself for us. And now share with us that victory over sin and death that He alone accomplished. Now He calls upon us. To be witnesses of these things. Not only was it necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise again, verse 47 tells us there's another necessity. His suffering rising again wasn't just because God was bored one day, thought this would be a good idea. But that repentance or remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. We have two aspects of salvation described here in two R words. Um, by the way, it's not that way in Greek, but that's okay. Um, we'll use the, alliter the alliteration here for our purposes. Repentance. What does repentance have to do with? What does it have to do with? It has to do with the idea that I come to God acknowledging, first of all, that it is impossible for me to rid myself of my sin, of my own self, that I have in fact sinned, and that I am worthy and just to receive the punishment for that sin, which is eternal death. I come to God and I recognize that fact and I declare it before Him and full of remorse and saying, recognizing that I am a sinner and I deserve of eternal judgment and that there is nothing I can do to separate me from my sin. And therefore, I trust in You alone to do that on my behalf. It requires something of man. Repentance is the part that man comes to God God has already come to us. He came to us at Bethlehem and lived among us. He came and dwelt among us and was murdered by our hands and conquered sin and death. He came 
He then requires a response. A repentance is the response of us to God coming to us with this wondrous thing that is overwhelming and terrifying, really, if you think about it, that there was no other way that God could handle this situation. There was no other way. And that should terrify you. If you're here not a Christian, it should terrify you to know that God Himself couldn't deal with your sin any other way than by sending His Son to die for you. And you think you're going to get rid of it by genuflecting a few times and praying through a few beads? Or going up and blowing up a building? And yourself with it? Whatever your faith base is, that somehow you're going to get rid of it by doing more good than evil in your life? What foolishness! It should terrify you to think that God could have no other way to deal with this sin problem of man. And so He came and dealt with it and offers it. But He makes a demand that we respond by repentance, turning from our sin and turning to Him. That we must turn to Him. That we must receive His offer of salvation and make it our own. And so the first statement there for that repentance occurs. First of all, repentance couldn't have happened if God hadn't come to us first and offered this gift. I shared last week. And a very important, again, very critical theological point there. God offers this capacity and He gives it to all men that they could and all should respond to Him. All can. All should. And therefore, all stand guilty if they do not. But repentance is man's response. And the first thing it tells us to preach, notice it. What are you supposed to be preaching? Repentance should be preached in Christ's name. And we find the disciples doing this. When we go to the book of Acts, we find them preaching repentance. They're not sitting there worried, well, I hope they don't come, they come back next Sunday. I better not mention the fact that they're horrible sinners. Peter didn't seem to be too concerned. In fact, he pointed at something and says, you crucified the Savior. You put Him on that cross. You with your wicked hands did this thing. Wow. Let's start pointing at people and calling out sin. By name. I think it's high time. And maybe that's the only hope for... It is. Not maybe. There's no maybes about it. It's the only hope for men. We wonder why men aren't convicted of sin. Well, we're not trying to convince them of it. We're not even exposing it. We aren't even pointing to it and calling it sin. Well, that's an alternative lifestyle. That's a problem. That's a problem they have. It's an addiction. All of those are ways of calling sin something else so that men don't have to feel guilty for it. We have pills for people if they feel too guilty to make that guilt feelings go away. You shouldn't feel guilty. You shouldn't feel low of yourself. Um, guilt is one of the most precious possessions of man. You know why? Because it brings us to repentance. And if there's no guilt, then there's no hope. 
The wonder of the Christian life is we don't have to live with guilt because we have a Savior that we've already humbled ourselves to and we walk. And when we fail, we confess He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. And we strive harder yet to please Him. But the first response is one of repentance. Man's response to God's work. Christ has come, suffered, and risen from the dead on the third day. Now, your response is repentance. Romans tells the goodness of God leads us to repentance. So when you're convicted of your sin by the Holy Spirit, when some uh, bony finger guy points his finger in your face and says, you dirty, rotten sinner, that is evil, that is wrong, that is sin, and oh, the, we would have someone doing that to this generation. I've gotten to the point that I almost can't read the newspaper anymore. Let's see, this week, Albuquerque, New Mexico... Two teenagers ask for a ride on a cold night. The guy feels sorry for them because they don't have coats. They direct him to a cul-de-sac and stab him 24 times. Why? And take his vehicle. He has to throw a brick through a window to get any help. No one will run out to help him. He crawls in the broken window and he is threatened, if you come in here, I'll kill you by the resident of the house. Why? Why do we have a generation that lives like this? 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 15-year-olds who are committing gross acts of violence and murder because no one tells them when they are three that's wrong. No one tells them when they're 12 that's sin and punishes them because they deserve it. No one at school will tell them that's wrong and mark it wrong and give them an F. And then we wonder why they're not coming to Christ. I want you to understand, this generation has no hope for they have no conscience because we have, ex we have ex eradicated guilt from our culture. Because we won't point the finger and say that's sin. It's wrong. I stirred up a hornet's nest. Poor Rachel Bailey, I did it for her. All I did was said, what you've done is wrong. And boy, it's like the response of the people at the program was like, I, he's really mad. And I was... Did I yell? Was I, I just said that it was wrong. What you've done is wrong. And it's not excusable. And it's not okay. Well, we're just human. No, that, that doesn't cut it. That's not the excuse. But in a guiltless society where nothing can ever really be wrong and nothing is ever my fault, one guy says that's wrong and the whole place gets stirred up. He must be really mad. I'm not mad. But I'll tell you who is. The holy, holy, holy God. And that's what the seven years of the outpouring of His mad is. Or His wrath. And we live in that day. And let me tell you something. It's not just in the United States. I've been to Haiti. I've been to India. 
We live in a society defined largely by our media and the media all over. And what you see going on in the Arab Spring is just more of the same. We live in a, in a homogenous society almost globally now where we are eradicating guilt. And we wonder why no one is getting saved. Because no one's guilty. It's not any of our faults. I should be bailed out for my irresponsible fiscal decisions. I shouldn't be held accountable. My country shouldn't be held accountable. Bail me out. Because I deserve it. Who says? You deserve to go hungry and starve if you can't pay your bills. Because you were foolish with your money. Why should others starve so you can have a third boat or house or car or the next greatest iPod event? Because you can't be satisfied. You see, once guilt is gone, hope is gone. And so Christ says the first thing needs to be preached. <clears throat> After you, Christ has come and done His work, you need to preach Repentance was demands for us to call sin, sin. And call men to be sorry for it. And our society has long since lost track of that. And let us not, among this number of people here and in the hearing on this iPod, ever fall into the trap of saying, oh, you have a problem. Oh, you have a hard situation. Oh, you have an addiction. Oh, you have this. Let's point at people and say, well, you're just doing evil. Stop it. Or get right with God. Because you deserve what you're getting. You don't need bailed out. You need saved by the blood of the Lamb. The second thing that happens once repentance occurs, we preach repentance, and then the next word is the exciting one. We always want to get to the next word because it's God's work on us. Remission of sins. The religious community is all about talking about the remission of sins. And we've skipped the important word, the responsive word, which is human responsibility, is to repent. We preach repentance, but then we don't just preach repentance and we don't just preach guilt. There are those out there um, that are marching around people's funerals saying that you all deserve to die and go to hell, and we hope you all do. And we don't need it at, at homosexual events to go around and at abortion clinics to tell people, oh, you deserve to go to hell. I hope you go to hell. Can't wait till you go to hell. You're going to hell. Because that's not the whole message either. We live in a very unbalanced world, don't we? We always love to be imbalanced. The balance is we come with this message to repent because God wants to remove your sin. And this is the work of God. So God initiates it by coming. God initiates it by sending His Son, Jesus Christ. God initiates it with the work of the Holy Spirit. God initiates it by giving man the capacity of faith to trust in Him and to respond to Him. He has given that capacity to all men. And now He waits. And man now responds by repentance, or should respond by repentance, recognizing I'm a terrible sinner. I deserve all the punishment. It can't be removed from me. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can drink. There's no pill I can take. I'm guilty. And God says, Hallelujah. 
Now I can remove your sin. And God's response to man's repentance is removal of sin. And this we preach, that God and God alone can do the impossible. He can take sin away. It doesn't just evaporate. It doesn't go nowhere. It goes back to the cross. And it hangs on Him. But that's why He did it. So we preach sin. We call it that. And then we call men to repentance. That. Not just that they can walk around guilty, but that they could have that sin remission. Is that the verb of remission? Remissed? Removed. This two parts. Christ comes. Man responds with repentance. God responds with removal of sin. Is to be preached in Christ's name to all nations beginning right here and God says, you're witnesses of these things. This is our mandate. Not just for the disciples, not just for the eyewitnesses, but for all those who witness of it, who know this truth, who have been recipients of this truth. We have now our response. It's starting to sound like a relationship, isn't it? God says, I love you. So, I'm going to do the greatest thing. I'm going to send my son Jesus to die for you. I'm going to give you the capacity to know Him and to trust Him. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin. Now, I'm going to wait. Your response is, I'm going to re- I repent of my sin. I come to you and I confess. Uh, I'm going to trust only in Jesus Christ and that gift that you offer. I want to receive it for myself. God says, praise the Lord. And He's going to respond to your repentance by removing your sin. And now... Here is our response to that wondrous act of God. Behold your servant. That's it. Behold your servant. I will do whatever you ask of me. And Christ says, Preach it. That's what he asks. That's what he demands. Preach it. You see, if we stop the relationship at this point of removal of sin, we are an unthankful people. And I'm not sure that we're really saved fully. And I wonder at that. If you claim that you have had your sins removed because of this act of repentance, then the, the, and if there's any understanding in your mind of what just occurred there, um, there, there cannot help but be this response to God. Behold your servant! Just out of sheer thankfulness for what He has taken away from you and what He has granted you. That He has taken away your sin and granted you His victory. To do anything less than that is wickedness. Genuinely, it is wickedness. It needs to be confessed by us 
that wickedness. That we are so ungrateful to God for the removal of our sin, the granting to us of His victory, that we don't make ourselves 100% at His disposal. And say, as Samuel's instructed to say, Here I am! Your servant listens! And I'm ready to go and do what you tell me to do without question, without delay, without complaint. Here I come. Behold your servant. Christ says, oh, you are witnesses of these things. And if we will simply come to Him and say, I will do what you call upon me to do, the relationship isn't over. It continues. Look at verse 49. God responds to the humble heart that comes to Him and says, Behold your servant. He says, you don't have the strength in you to do what I need you to do. I'll send you my spirit. The promise of my Father upon you. You are endued with power from on high. It just keeps going. You can't best God in this relationship. He will never be the one to hang up the phone. He will never be the one that doesn't respond to the email. He'll never be the la- he'll never be the one that uh, you're going to say bye and he doesn't respond on the chat line. It begins with him, and guess what? It always ends with him. We come to God and say, "Behold, your servant." God just doesn't leave you hanging out there. He says, "Well, good luck with that." No. He says, I'll empower you to do what you need to do for me. You're not going to do it in your own wisdom, in your own strength, in your own capacities. I am going to endue you. I'm going to, I'm going to invest in you the power of God to do what I want you to do. But I want to know, are you willing? Just as He is capable of removing your sin, if only you would repent, so He is capable of empowering us for service if we will simply stand before God and say, Behold your servant! I'm listening! And I'm on my way! Do tell me, call me, lead me, direct me! And He does. He says, Preach it. Now, the word preach isn't what I do on Sunday mornings. The word preach there is proclaim. You don't have to have a, a degree in Bible or seminary or a reverend in front of your name or anything else behind your name. It just proclaim it. Speak forth this message. Christ has come because there's no other way to deal with your sin. And boy, you got it. And you can't get rid of it. And you deserve the punishment for it, which is death forever in a lake of fire. You ready to turn from it? Because he can deal with it. You can't. He's the only way of the impossibility of having your sins removed from you, transferred to someone else, and it's punishment. This is the message we proclaim. We are to be witnesses of these things. And God says, I'll empower you to do it. 
we have or claim to have a relationship with a personal being we refer to by the title God, the name Jesus, Jehovah, many other names. He has never let us down in His part of that relationship. And so the call to us today is to do our part. Perhaps for you this morning, that means you need to come to repentance. And if you don't do that, it is frightening to think that if you reject God's way and it's the only way God could get rid of your sin, it's frightening to reject that. But if you'll respond, He'll respond by removing it. If you're here as a believer today and you're hopefully enjoying being at the latter parts of this refreshing statement of life, out of pure thankfulness, if for no other reason, you should be serving your Savior. And His service entails being righteous, speaking the truth in love to those around you. And God will not let you down. He didn't let you down in delivering you from your sin. He will not fail us in empowering us for His service. And therefore, the failure falls on us to failing to respond to God as we ought to. And so the call today goes out to us that we might respond to God wherever we are in this process, that we might respond to God as He commands us.